Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is episode 24 of our podcast and happy Midsummer's Eve to all Swedes who happen to be listening as we publish this today. Um, we're all supposed to be dancing like heathens around the maple uh, later this evening. Uh, I, I will I will share no other uh, ethnic details, but, but it should be all good. So today we've decided that we'll go back to do one of our classics episode. And what could be more classic than a declaration of independence for cyberspace by John Perry Barlow? Right, Richard? Exactly, yes. So uh, 25 years ago... <laughs> Uh, this famous declaration was was made uh, by a guy actually I think you would recognize dancing around the maypole as a as a uh, I think a self-declared um, sort of San Francisco hippie type uh, yes. <laughs> and 25 years on it's very good to come back and, and uh, revisit it and it's good to also have in the back of our minds what the context was when he wrote this and he sort of penned it on his clunky Apple MacBook, as it says in a Wired article. Uh, he was he was in Davos, you know, Davos man gathers and discusses the future. And on the mind of everyone back in 1996 was the Internet. And Barlow, who had founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation six years prior to this in 1990 to fight for electronic rights, uh, was furious reportedly with Bill Clinton for signing the Telecommunications Act into force and in it um, also uh, the Communications Decency Act that restricted speech on the internet in the name of protection of minors. And so he sat down and he wrote this this uh, extraordinary document that's um, really a it's sort of it's it's a window into how the internet was perceived back then. And I think you and I discussed and decided that we would actually read it out and then comment on it paragraph by paragraph because it's worth doing that. It's worth sort of taking the time and thinking about this document in detail. So why don't you start with the first paragraph? I, I, I will start. And, and for those who are listening who, who haven't heard this, um, it's well worth going to your favorite search engine and typing in John Perry Barlow, uh, uh, Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace recording. And he actually did a recording sort of later in life, uh, which is really good. Um, so we will, we will do our humble best uh, to uh, do justice to the document. Um, so I will start with the with the opening uh, resounding words, which are governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel. I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You're not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. So, Nicholas, how do how do That's we feel this one something. has stood up? <laughs> it's quite a start. How do, how do we feel this has it, stood up? Well, I think I think there's so many things about this that resonate with me. One of the things that I, I think is interesting is this feeling of curating something incredibly new. And it's easy to forget, especially for the generations who have grown up with the internet, I think, the the feeling of being able to access a website in Australia or find a um, book um, in MIT Classics Archive like Plato or Aristotle or all that, that feeling, the feeling of newness, is what he's channeling in this one, I feel. It's sort of this, this This is a separate world opening up. And and if you think back about what your first encounters with the internet were, it's not far from that. And it's sort of, um, sometimes I, 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 it's a sign I'm getting horribly old, but I can sort of lament that people don't have that experience of, of encountering this global network of information and knowledge and debate for the first time. And I think that's what I think most about when I when I sort of hear this first paragraph. And then, of course, I think it's 
then then it's it's sort of really hard not to look at or sort of end up in the last sentence where it says you have no sovereignty where we gather. I mean, it turns out that uh, that that's something that uh, well. You you could argue that that was not entirely right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think, Rich? I mean, uh, I mean, actually, I, th- yeah, I was reflecting on this week's news that th- this contrast between you know the 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 government as a, a weary giant of flesh and steel and this cyberspace, and and actually just thinking about the current situation with um, Hong Kong, where where this week you know the government has closed down uh, uh, a newspaper, one of the sort of last independent newspapers, Apple Daily, which was which was uh, you know, um, promoting material that was critical of the government. And, and they could go in, they could arrest the people, they could freeze their assets, they could shut that thing down. But people in Hong Kong can still uh, get to their home of mind. They can go to cyberspace. So all that kind of content still exists. So there is still a contrast, I think, today between, you know, that which can be physically controlled by governments and cyberspace does exist as another thing. And of course, governments, and we assume the Chinese government will try and do this, can can try and prevent their people getting to cyberspace. But what they can't do is shut down cyberspace like they can shut down a physical newspaper. Um, so I think there is something still there that this thing is different because no single government is able to to sort of say, literally send people in and arrest the internet in the way that you can arrest uh, the people who produce a newspaper. Yes, and I think there's another thing here that's interesting to to reflect on, and that is that we 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 should remember that back then, back when Ben Barlow is writing this, it's not clear cut that the internet is synonymous with cyberspace. Yes. Uh, the concept of cyberspace, launched in Neuromancer by William Gibson, for example, is described as this consensual hallucination where we all we all sort of create really a home of mind. And the concept of cyberspace is vastly larger than the concept of the internet. They two get they they sort of increasingly get conflated and intertwined, and they're tied together in different ways. But when Barlow is writing metaphysically he's writing about something very different than just sort of the cables in the ground and the telecommunication right. providers and the websites and and that that is also something that is easily lost but you can you can see the creativity and generativity of this this alternate domain in for example clubhouse today where yeah. there are conversations had that can't be regulated and are or can be regulated sorry but are harder to regulate and are immediate and evaporate when you close the app there's there's something there too that i think is important to remember it's easy to read this and say well the internet got regulated but that's not that's not no. covering i think the full vision of what barlow is trying to do here Exactly. So do, do you want to take on the second paragraph where, where he gets straight on to this governance question? Yes, yes. So I'll read the second paragraph. It says, we have no elected government, nor are we likely to have one. So I address you with no greater authority than that with which liberty itself always speaks. I declare the global social space we're building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement we have true reason to fear. So what do you think about this one, Richard? So, so, um, so in some areas, I think it's actually true that this global social space is naturally independent of tyrannies. And uh, you know, um, it is inherently very difficult to control. The nature of it is such that uh, any single government will find it hard to control and therefore say last resort is they try and cut off access to the space because it is uncontrollable. But that last uh, sentence, so, so you have no moral right to rule us. 
Mm, uh, you know, I think that may have shifted that there are quite a few people who feel that that they that they would like uh, governments to to intervene more on the internet. So that definitely, I think, uh, has shifted, and that may reflect in part that that John Perry Barlow comes from a particular sort of U.S. libertarian tradition that that is more skeptical of government, shall we say, than than ordinary citizens are in a lot of other parts of the world. And then this very last sentence. Uh, you don't possess m- any methods of enforcement. We have two reasons to fear. I think that has fundamentally shifted, and uh, and you know governments have uh, developed methods of enforcement, and that's actually still we're still at the frontier of that debate. Um, you know that the idea that that governments would not find their uh, find ways to kind of get hold of private conversations uh, to to spy on people to surveil them. I think in 1996 it seemed like you know the the techies the geeks were way, way ahead of governments. I think in 2021, governments have caught up a lot. And in many cases, they are able to, to you know, surveil and intrude to, to a very significant degree. Yeah, it's funny, because when you read exactly that sentence, you, you go like, well, Barlow made the right observation, but he drew the wrong conclusion, because mm-hmm. the observation that you have no methods of enforcement, we have any reason to fear, should lead you in the next step to, oh, so that's what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that seems to be the reasonable conclusion, right? And there's a lot of stuff like that in the declaration, where the yeah. observation is accurate, but the conclusion sort of doesn't follow. There is not immediately the conclusion that, oh, so this is what will happen. I think with 20 20 hindsight, of course, it's hindsight. It's sort of easy to say that, but but I think that's really, really uh, one thing that sort of stands out when you reread the Declaration 25 years later is that it's sort of its predictive powers in the observations are not being fleshed out in conclusions that could have led to perhaps a very different program. Now, we should say he was successful. The CDA was challenged constitutionally and struck down by the US Supreme Court. So in a sense, the declaration did what it was supposed to do. Uh, but but it's sort of there's there's so much more in these observations that mm. is not drawn out. The other thing that I thought about that I wanted to ask you about this is that, the, you know, he describes um, he describes this it says, I declare the global social space we're building to be naturally independent. That this is a social space. This is way before social networks were even thought of, right? But there's something, there's something about that I found really interesting. He, he doesn't talk about it as a technology, nor almost never. He talks about it as this social space. And there's, there's something about that I thought was intriguing. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a place where people come together. Uh, and I think that's sort of like a consistent theme. It's this, you know, his, his real passion is the exchange of ideas, um, in, in all senses, whether that's, you know, uh, created products. And, and again, if people aren't familiar, he was very, very strongly against, um, use of copyright law. And this actually goes back to the Grateful Dead, uh, that he was part of where, where, um, you know, they famously were very comfortable with people making cassette recordings of their concerts and distributing them uh, at a time when that was seen as sort of shockingly revolutionary. So, so he's very much into the idea. Yes, it's about people getting together and sharing created product ideas of all sorts with each other in this global social space. Um, to your point on, on you're right, the predictive power of, of, or rather the accurate description of what's happening, but, but not predicting the reaction. I think when we get onto the next paragraph, that's exactly where we are with some of uh, what he talks about there. Um, so if I can jump into that one, he, he says, governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. You have neither solicited nor received ours. We did not invite you. 
You do not know us, nor do you know our world. Cyberspace does not lie within your borders. Do not think you can build it as though it were a public construction project. You cannot. It is an act of nature, and it grows itself through our collective actions. So, Nick, I'm curious about that. You know, um, uh, uh, government consent <laughs> to to, uh, to to manage this space. Have they, have they solicited our consent now? Have we invited them in? No, but this is, and you're right. I mean, this is this is also where his powers of observation exceed his power of prediction. Because I think, in a certain sense, uh, he he believes that that consent can be withheld, and mm-hmm. that this space is so separate that you can uh, essentially talk about a, a new act of consent being needed. And I I think they haven't solicited our consent. I don't think they they uh, ever felt that they needed to. And we're falling into Barlow's language here with with us and them, right? Um, um, the, the sort of the governments haven't uh, solicited our consent. They haven't asked us what we think about the internet, and and they're still not really as knowledgeable. Uh, you do not know us. That's one of the things he writes, right, about the technology as they would need to be in order to to be inhabitants of it. If you remember, you will have seen this in the hearings in the US Congress, for example, one of the consistent pieces of commentary was that the knowledge gap is still persistent, and perhaps in many senses, larger now than when Barlow wrote this, because then it wasn't a knowledge gap, then it was an ignorance gap, you just didn't know what was going on with the internet. Today, people believe they know, but don't. And there's something about that that's also interesting. I think the the thing that I thought about when I read this paragraph that I want to ask you about is it There is something spectacular about the notion that it's an act of nature and it grows itself (laughs) through our collective actions. An act of nature. I think this is the Californian hippie shining through, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But uh, but I actually, this again was one where I think it does really hold up. Um, That it is this, you know, the internet is what we all have made of it. Uh, It doesn't exist sort of necessarily outside ourselves and and it has grown. And sometimes we, we don't, necessarily like to recognize that because again we'll get on to when he talks about this sort of mix of the 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 good the bad and the ugly with the internet but um you know i think it does in many ways reflect all of our collective actions for better or worse so, so i think this this does hold true uh, just on the that you do not know us um as, as reading one of the other pieces that uh, john perry barlow wrote about the, the origins of the eff this campaigning organization and he talks about back in 1990 where the fbi came to interview him about uh, uh, some source code that had been you know, illegally, allegedly illegally released. And, and he has this wonderful description where he says he, he spent uh, three hours, I think it was, explaining to the FBI agent what guilty would look like before he could go on to, to justify his innocence because the FBI agent was coming to accuse him of a crime that the FBI agent did not understand at all. And so, so again, if we think back then, uh, part of the, the scene that was happening at that time was that you had law enforcement agents running around trying to prosecute people for offences, which were quite serious. I mean, it would be you know, really bad to be uh, sort of hauled in on one of these crimes. But the agents themselves did not know them. They did not know that world. Um, and so I think that's really sort of... So illustrate to say what was happening then, and to a certain extent, still happens today. I mean, law enforcement has caught up, um, but there are still huge gaps between, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this between what law enforcement thinks is possible sometimes and what's actually possible. 
I think that's right, and it's it's intriguing because if you if you sort of if you move beyond that and you look at this paragraph, one of the things that, that and it's connected to the knowledge piece, I think, that happens in this paragraph is that this is sort of one of the founding paragraphs of internet exceptionalism. Internet is different. Internet is other. Internet is a space, a domain, uh, something alternate that you cannot understand. And it, it is an act of nature. Sort of this, it places the internet solely uh, outside of, of the all of the existing things. And internet exceptionalism sort of draws on that note being the idea that the internet is different from everything else. What I thought was interesting with the nature point, and the reason I got sort of so stuck on that is that, yeah. that I, I've always read before, but and I've read this declaration and sort of you know, talked about it. I've always read uh, Barlow as 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 a light technological determinist. That what he is trying to do here is to say this is the way technology will develop. But I now much more think that he's an animist. That he sort mm. of feels that this thing is inspired by spirit, by will, by nature. That it's it's something inherent in us that brought this forward in opposition to to all of the you know, weary giants of flesh and steel. And and I think that's I think that's fundamentally different. And it goes back to the point that cyberspace and the internet are not synonymous. And there's something about that reading of of this paragraph, the act of nature paragraph, that that I think is is uh, it, it sort of gives me more insight into why he defended the declaration so so ardently later in his life that he still felt that this was sort of a product of of nature in some way and yeah. and it is if you look at the network structure for example of the internet the network structure of the internet is a condom network structure you will find in nature you will find similar network structures in nature so the phenomenon as such at least the internet if not cyberspace yeah. does carry characteristics that are more natural than artificial which i think is yeah. interesting i think you're right a public construction project p- purely would end up very different from this organic uh, beast that's grown so um do you want to take us up to the next next uh, paragraph uh yeah sort of expand yeah. a bit yeah. more on how this thing runs Yes, and I, but I, I do think it's worthwhile uh, emphasizing what you just said that when he says it's not a public construction project he means it's not planned it's yes. not something that can be sort of just willed into existence by government. And and again, there is a fundamental dichotomy that he's laying out that I think is is fascinating. So the next paragraph then, the next paragraph is, is sort of sharpening this distinction between us and them. So it goes like this. You have not engaged in our great and gathering conversation, nor did you create the wealth of our marketplaces. You do not know our culture, our ethics or the unwritten codes that already provide our society more order than could be obtained by any of your impositions. More order. What did he mean by that? Yeah, so, so I think um, in some areas, again, this really does hold true. If we think about the fundamental protocols on which the internet runs, um, those are developed, I think, in a, a way that is more orderly than any government would do. So, so the, the one that people are probably most familiar with is the domain name system, this thing that allows you to type in www.regulate.tech and get to my website rather than having to remember the, the numbers, the IP address of it. That works really, really well. It's really orderly. And actually, the times when it usually breaks is when a government gets involved and and orders something to happen with uh, um, some of the technology that then ends up breaking <laughs> the way in which that system works. So, so I think to, to a large degree, when you think about the technical infrastructure that that does work on these 
unwritten codes. I mean, they're not formal laws and they often involve writing, but they're, they're based on groups of people getting together, um, uh, with, with rules that they've developed themselves rather than have imposed on them by governments. That sort of stuff works really well. I think where it's perhaps more of a stretch is when we, when we, uh, think about, you know, the, the social behavior that exists between people. And there I, I think we can explore this further, but whether the, you know, the, the lack of law and the unwritten codes are as effective there. But when it comes to technical protocol, they're absolutely, uh, I think they do work better than, than any government could have created. Um, I, I'm curious about, because there's this thing of, nor did you create the wealth of our marketplaces. So it's the first time we sort of get into talk about money. And one of the things that strikes me that um, this doesn't necessarily reflect is, you know, he's talking to government throughout this. And arguably the thing that stepped into the, the gap because governments couldn't regulate the internet uh, was the large companies. It's been businesses that have sort of ended up governing these social spaces as opposed to governments governing these social spaces. What do you think of that? I agree. I also it also jumped out at me this notion of the wealth of our marketplaces. This is this is far. I mean, this is far before the dot com boom really took mm-hmm. off, and far before you could think about the the internet as a place of commerce. And he also speaks of transactions later on. And it's sort of yes. it's clear that he sees that for this space to be truly independent, it actually needs economic activity. And so he's far beyond this pristine image of the internet as an academic ivory network, if you will, right? So he's thinking about how commerce is embedded in it, and he is seeing that the commerce on the internet will be far greater than than commerce outside of the internet. And that is increasingly true. If you even if a lot of the uh, GDP is still not on the internet, I think that if you look at growth rates, it's it's clear that online commerce is growing much, much faster than any other comparable economic activity. And so, so to me, I think this is this is a visionary piece. And this this is such an interesting paragraph because this is also where I think the largest failures of, of Barlow's uh, declaration lie. And and the and and you said this, and I think we should get back to this because to me, it's this notion of our great and gathering conversation that the internet is our great and gathering conversation, whereas you could arguably say that it's our small and divisive quarrel. That's sort of what <laughs> we've ended up with. And 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 that you just mentioned this notion of, of the social order, while the technical order, you know, the IETF and the rough consensus and running code, and we've been able to build all of this without any internet uh, standards being um, prescribed by the state. All of that is amazing. I think that that in many ways, it's in the social space that that his observations are off and his predictions are way off. The notion of our great and gathering conversation, just that's that's not a fair description of where we are today, I don't think. And and this leads me to a question that I'd like to sort of run by you. And it's many people see this and say, well, he failed to predict the internet and what the internet would become and sort of cast the declaration as a failure of technological prediction. But is, isn't it more a failure of social prediction? Prediction of uh, mankind. Yeah, so I think to, to, there's an optimism, and again, this is sort of um, perhaps a recurrent theme for us to, to come back to that. That I think there is sometimes an assumption, uh, an unrealistically optimistic assumption about human nature uh, that that comes from people who who build internet services and and indeed build the internet, and and, and those assumptions, you know, people is a classic liberal assumption. It's my political tradition that you know people are basically good, and if you leave them alone and give them space, they will end up being nice to each other and doing good things. 
And so this notion of a sort of great and gathering conversation is what happens when these good, good, small elf liberal people get together and, and have a, a fantastically rich, uh, educated, whatever conversation. Of course, you know, now I'm, I'm not going to go to the other end of the spectrum. People are essentially sort of inherently bad and you, and you need to be, you know, all over them, policing them constantly. But, um, uh, I have to say a lot of, a lot of where people sort of see the internet as, as failing or weak is, is in the fact that, you know, um, uh, products and services are put out there. They are often in the initial stages used in this sort of liberally expected way. Um, but over time, people start to move in and abuse and exploit them. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, whether that's in the e-commerce space or whether that's in, in uh, the social media space, uh, there, there are certain tendencies towards when something becomes sort of very, very successful that it becomes a target for abuse. And I think that's what's been consistently underestimated. And that abuse can 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 reach the level where, you know, our great and gathering conversation, you know, is no longer worth it because uh, some people have come in and spoiled it and made it a conversation you don't want to be part of. So I think that's, again, and we'll get into that in the next paragraph, but this sort of uh, a persistent uh, threat uh, I think is a is a key part that was underestimated here. This sort of you know, say almost naive assumption that we'll we'll build these spaces and they'll be inhabited by good people doing good things, uh, you know, and and there'll be a very small minority of bad people doing bad things. I think it holds true to one extent, but the effect of that badness is much greater than perhaps people predicted, and and the desire to be protected from the badness is more than I think is anticipated here. I think it's a failure of imagination on scale as well. I mean, I think yeah. when, when Barlow writes this, he, he writes on the background of not just conversations in the well that were super, it was like an Athenian agora where really smart people got together and discussed the future of like everything. And it was a, one of the foundational, if you want to understand Silicon Valley, you can't understand it without understanding the well, I would argue. So mm. I think that's sort of one part. But, but also, if, if you remember news groups, right? News groups were a great and gathering conversation. But as the internet grew and as these networks became larger and as, as sort of they exploded, I think something happens when networks scale to a point where we suddenly don't feel comfortable with the flat social ginormous sort of surface that, that expands in front of us. And we instead feel that, okay, we need to, to sort of seek our way back to tribes, to smaller smaller contexts and and in a sense what we do then is that we we start to sort of we we build smaller contexts and the larger contexts become sort of the deserts of polarization they become really really hard to navigate in different ways and i i i think that what what is interesting here is that not even barlow in his sort of most visionary state could imagine how enormously large the internet would become how ubiquitous it would become and what the scale would do to the ability to deliberate because deliberation yes. happens in smaller groups. And so I think that's that's sort of where I think he goes interestingly wrong here, where a great and gathering conversation can't be held amongst millions. It could be held amongst the thousands that were participating at the time, but but it's, it's a failure of, of imagination when it comes to scale. And that's saying quite something. If you go back to 1996 and, and you just look up for visionary people, you couldn't get much more visionary than, yeah. than John Barry. Uh, I mean, not even with drugs. <laughs> you could yes. even get more visionary than John Barry Barlow, I don't think. So I yeah. find that also uh, an interesting aspect of this. Shall we, um, shall we yeah. um, 
see what the next paragraph tells us. Yes. So the next paragraph does zero in precisely on on this question of, of the harms that may occur. And it reads like this. You claim there are problems among us that you need to solve. You use this claim as an excuse to invade our precincts. Many of these problems don't exist. Where there are real conflicts, where there are wrongs, we will identify them and address them by our means. We are forming our own social contract. This governance will arise according to the conditions of our world, not yours. Our world is different. So, Nicholas, <laughs> uh, did the problems exist and were they addressed uh, through the cyberspace's own means? They were in the beginning, I would argue. Yeah. I think that at the time that he wrote this, he is, it's an accurate description of where things stand. But he is he sort of uh, forget, and again, internet exceptionalism, how much clearer can it become? Our world is different, right? It's different from yes. everything else that came before it. Uh, but I think the, the, there, there is, if, if you had the chance to sit down with him when he was writing this and discuss with him, and when he sort of puts the social contract in here, the question you'd like to ask him is, social contracts, at least in, in post-Hobbesian state theory, are put in place to avoid the state of nature. If you think about that, what do you think the state of nature on the internet will be as it grows? If you do need a social contract and how are you sure that you're going to be able to shape a social contract that's larger than any social contract that's been shaped in the history of mankind on top of arguably very successful internet protocols? But can a social contract really be designed for a global network? I think, and that's sort of one of the things you, when you read this, you go like, he, he, again, he identifies sort of the, the key tensions. We, with a social contract for the internet, uh, is such a popular thought today that it's easy to forget that it is actually a thought that comes from John Perry Barlow. McKinsey, I think, recently sent out the, um, um, a report that was just called a new social contract for the digital age or something like that. And, and everyone is opining about or, or sort of thinking about the social contract right now. But, but, but the, the key tension in a social contract is with the state of nature. You know, it's, it's Hobbes. It's everyone's war against everyone else. And so what is the natural state of the internet? And what do you think? Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I, when I read this paragraph, actually, I'm thinking of the current debate around encryption and in, encrypted private messaging. And, and uh, you know, the, the government's argument runs exactly along the lines he, he um, describes. Uh, the government claims that there are problems that they need to solve, and they're using that claim as an excuse to invade the precincts of, you know, secure private messaging. Now, again, I'd argue maybe he goes too far in saying many of these problems don't exist. I mean, some of them don't, but I, I think the debate actually is more even recognizing that those problems do exist, that there are some people who will use secure private messaging for, for uh, bad purposes. Um, what is the, you know, the right price to pay in terms of everybody else's privacy in order to, to um, be able to crack down on, on those individuals? And there, I think, you know, this world is different. Um, so, so, and, and, and any solution has to reflect the conditions of this world, the world of where encrypted private messaging exists rather than the old world where it didn't. So again, I think there's some real bones of something substantive here that there is a dynamic where governments, um, have an interest in talking up problems in order to get into these spaces. Uh, and even where there are, are problems, the, the debate is less 
or, or, or sort of less the case that the government can just kind of come and impose its will, but it has to respond as well to the technical nature and the way in which these new services are used. Um, so there's a lot in here, I think, I said, that reads straight across to debate, a really hot debate we're having right now about um, uh, encrypted private messaging, uh, which will require, in a sense, its own social contract, a contract where we as users of encrypted private messaging uh, have to be part of the conversation about the extent to which, for example, we would be comfortable with the keys that allow someone to decrypt our messages being in the hands of government uh, in order to be able to catch uh, some people who do exist and are carrying out abuse over those systems. So that that is a social contract between us and the government, our privacy versus our security uh, in a conversation around technology. So that's still happening today, 25 years on. And the other the other part of this paragraph that that is worth highlighting, I think, is that when he says many of these problems don't exist, mm. I think you you could argue that in the time that um, uh, has happened, you know, the twenty five years that has passed since he wrote this, there's been in tech policy several occasions of heated debates around problems that don't exist. And when I say don't exist, I think I I would say that they're addressing the wrong thing. So when you're talking, for example, about the early encryption wars that follow very quickly on um, Barlow's declaration, where you wanted to put a clipper chip in all of the computers and prohibit um, encryption to be privately used, it was sort of the first first crypto war. We're now in the second one. In that war, the, there was um, a really interesting and revealing conversation or a hearing really in Congress where they asked how many cases the uh, the, the law enforcement agencies had where they had not been able to, to solve the case or proceed with the case solely because they did not have access to communications that were encrypted. And the, and the answer to that question predictably was zero. So mm. the manufacturing of problems to control this alternate domain should not be underestimated as one of the many factors in which the government, you know, one of the many responses that the government has crafted in order to to address this this sort of separate uh, alternate uh, community, right? Yeah, I think I, I, again, one of those areas where I think um, I'd like to be even-handed, just recognize everyone's internal biases. And you know, if I was working in law <laughs> enforcement, I would want to get more powers to do my job, which is catch criminals. And yeah. the way I would do that is to talk up the threats all of the time. And if I'm working in an internet company, and what I want to do is, you know, sort of uh, control my own technology and and not have it dictated by law enforcement agencies. My incentive is to talk down the problems uh, so that I can sort of weaken the case for those interventions. So I think you say in that debate, both sides have an inbuilt incentive, one to exaggerate and the other to play down. Uh, and to a certain extent in this paragraph, I think, you know, John Barry Barlow is a little is on that techie side uh, with that statement where he, he is incentivized, I think, to play them down. And that's to say, not a criticism, that's just sort of instinctive if you're on the tech side of the debate. Um, I think that's right. But but I also I also think that it is um, it is an interesting question whether or not a problem exists. And it's very yeah. rare that we take the time to to ask that question. And it's not it's not to trivialize the problems at all. But I think that the, the sort of if you dig deeper in that particular thought, what you find is the question of is it the right problem we're trying to solve? Yeah, it, Both it, you I and think I that's I, the right question. Yeah. 
and and both you and I have have repeatedly been been frustrated. I think when it comes to the way that problems are framed and the framings and the sort of discussion around them. So so for example, we talked about the positive and negative framing. Is fake news a problem, or should we talk about how to use the internet to increase participation participation in democracy and and the sort of citizenship? And and there is something there. I think that that also flows from that paragraph. Yeah, I think you're right, because there's a difference between, you know, talking down the fake news, which would be the sort of classic response of, well, it's, it's not as bad as you think, versus saying, you know, well, yeah, it, it exists, but here's why, you know, it's not the problem, or the nature of the problem is different from the one that you thought it was, and here's why a, a different kind of solution is required. And so, so I think we often end up, we end up uh, uh, exactly as you described, sort of focused on the wrong part of the problem, but then have end up in this sort of fairly um, unproductive discussion where one side is saying, you know, there's lots of this stuff and the other side is saying there's less of this stuff, but you're still talking about the stuff rather than the broader uh, problem that you're trying to address. Um, yes, so we should yeah, we should true. take the next paragraph because we now, now we will get into some some yeah. some heavy stuff. So the next paragraph is cyberspace consists of transactions, relationships and thought itself arrayed like a standing wave in the web of our communications. Ours is a world that is both everywhere and nowhere, but it is not where bodies live. So where do bodies live? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Um I, think, I mean, again, so fascinating because I, I love that framing, the array like a standing wave in the web of our communications, which is just such a, a beautiful sort of description of the internet. And, and again, you, you just mentioned it, that we don't talk enough about the positives. One of the positives is is this wave of uh, the web of our communications. And, and it is phenomenal. It's like um, it's done more in a sense for sort of humanity than pretty much anything else in terms of our intellectual life. Uh, the, the fact that anyone with an internet connection anywhere has access to this massive, massive treasure trove of information, opinions, created content is superb. Um, I think this question about where, you know, where our bodies live, again, this sort of phrase that gets trotted out all the time of, uh, things that are illegal online need to be uh, offline need to be illegal online and this sort of equating or rather assumption that the things that are happening online have uh, some material effects where our bodies live um, uh, in in uh, geek speak uh, meat space sometimes called isn't it um, so a lot of the tension sort of exists exactly at that connection or, or, or um, in the debate around the connection between the intellectual world, these forms of expression in the web of communications and impacts they will have in the physical world. And so something like hate speech would be the classic example. Or uh, you see it again and again, is there a connection between, you know, playing an online violent video game and real world violence? Um, so this, this sort of dichotomy or this separation between web of communications and place where our bodies live, I think is, is real in one sense. But from a regulatory point of view, the assumption is that, no, these two do merge together and the web of communications creates harm in the spaces where our bodies live. And it goes back to an early uh, 
sort of figure of thought that was very common with uh, early internet uh, theoreticians, I think, where where the the idea was that because you cannot know who I am, because you mm-hmm. cannot trace my body, that's why you can't rule me. Are my the, sort of the yeah. sovereignty of cyberspace was built on the inability to to make this connection, and and you find it in in early science fiction novels like True Names by Werner Winge, or even Neuromancer that we mentioned earlier. In True Names, the um, the sort of and this is like in old magic, by the way, if you knew somebody's true name, you could exercise yes. power over them because you could find them in neat space. And uh, yeah. if you didn't know somebody's true name, then they were essentially free to exercise their power as they wanted in cyberspace. And and this dichotomy between body and and uh, and cyberspace, body and mind to a large degree, uh, is, is one that I think that is that has truly collapsed in many ways. And there's a, there's an interesting book that came out much later called Who Controls the Internet? I think Jack Goldsmith was one of the authors. Yeah. Uh, was Tim Wu the other? I don't remember. Um, but but maybe he was. But so in this in this book, Goldsmith, who is a is a pithy writer and and somewhat of a dry humor, says that uh, when it comes to um, uh, cracking encryption or when it comes to finding things on the internet. Um, Governments can always resort to what he called rubber hose analysis, <laughs> uh, which is essentially just beating somebody up with a rubber hose until they tell you what the password actually is. And uh, I mean, there's there's something about our bodies not being disconnected from the internet, being enmeshed in it, that I think is is another point where this uh, sort of cyberspace metaphor has evolved enormously since 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 uh, Barlow wrote this. And again, this mm. is also a failure of imagination of how close technology would creep to us. Think about your your Fitbit or your Apple Watch or, you know, technology is creeping closer to us all the time, from the desktop to the laptop to the mobile in your pocket to this little thing that you have on your arm that tracks all of your health to Neuralink that's embedded in your brain. If anything, you could argue that Barlow was underestimating the gravity that the body has for technology and the sort of the dragging of the technology into the body that you can see happening over time, which, you know, may be a creepy or scary feeling for people, but certainly seems to be borne out by an analysis of the trends. And so so I think that's that's what I find so interesting about but this this sort of mind body dichotomy that that comes back several times uh, as a as a figure of thought in this and and to me it's it's just it's it's not right that's not how technology evolved absolutely yeah. yeah, i agree and i think we get there's a more more areas where he he sort of talks about this sort of physical uh, mental uh, sort of divide and and I agree i think that that's one of the spaces that we we where where the declaration uh, um, didn't predict the future, I think, sufficiently accurately. But so, so I go on to a, a, two paragraphs I'll do together, because they, I think they do run together, which is about, about access to this space, which I find really interesting. Um, so the first of them reads, we are creating a world that all may enter without privilege or prejudice accorded by race, economic power, military force, or station of birth. And the next paragraph is, we are creating a world where anyone, anywhere may express his or her beliefs, no matter how singular, without fear of being coerced into silence or conformity. So, Nick, how, how do you feel? Do, do, you th- do you think we have a space that is uh, uh, entirely open to all without those factors taking place? And is it a space where anyone, anywhere can express their beliefs? We still have massive digital divides. But I think that the the, the principled... The, the sort of approach or the the thought here is is 
essentially right. If you if you think about other technologies and you think about how accessible they have been to people all around the world, I would argue that they've been much less available. Think about think about such a simple thing as as uh, sanitation. I mean, how yes. is is sanitation something that that all may use without privilege or prejudice? No, it's it's enormously um, it's distributed in, unequally uh, in a very different way than the internet is. So the internet has an ability to, I think, spread much faster uh, than than many other technologies do. And and I don't think if you have access, if you come to the point where you can access, there's no qualification on privilege, prejudice, or uh, on race, economic power, military force, or station of birth. There is on the bandwidth that you can have, the quality of your connection, and if you have access or not. But, but so far, we haven't created entry qualifications i think what do you think are we heading that way are we sort of qualifying entry to this space and so so i think over time that um i think the the in sense it's gone in both directions so so one is look simply through cost which i think was the the sort of biggest barrier previously the cost of both connection and equipment you know did mean that a lot of people indirectly <laughs> Uh, couldn't access the internet, not not because the internet was inherently barring them as, as a racial group or as a, as a social group with, within a particular country, but the cost condition meant that they were effectively barred. Also, a certain amount of, of sort of knowledge, and again, if we think of older people in particular, you know, there was a fear, a, a fear of the technology and a fear of using the internet that effectively acted as a, a barrier Again, not the internet didn't um, sort of say we have a barrier to old people, but the effect of the fact you needed a certain amount of technical expertise um, meant that you know for some people that that uh, it didn't feel like an accessible technology. So those barriers, I think, have reduced over time. The the cost barriers and the technical barriers, mobile phones being the classic example, and uh, um, they are now sort of prevalent in countries where cost was a factor before. And, and I think sort of simpler devices, um, Macs being the sort of classic example and the various sort of eye devices have been adopted, I think, at scale by um, people who aren't comfortable with technology but feel fine with these very, very uh, user-friendly devices. Um, so, so barriers have fallen. Uh, at the same time, there is a certain extent to which they are creating some new um, barriers uh, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the, this second paragraph, this question about conformity, um, uh, so, so, and, and they talk about expressing your beliefs, however singular. So if we just sort of practically look at this and say, look, you know, now that you can use an iPhone with the App Store, blah, 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 at re- relatively sort of reasonable cost, you know, we've removed some set of barriers. But if you now have uh, singular views of the kind of views that are expressed on a platform like Parler, which is one we keep coming back to, you find that it's not available in the app store uh, because it's been banned because it's full of sort of right-wing conspiracy theories. And, and uh, I can't remember whether it's back on or off again now. So we've gone in both directions. We've, uh, I think, lowered the barriers, these sort of economic power station of birth type barriers, because we've now got cheaper, more user-friendly devices. But in doing so, we may have created more uh, of the second kind of restrictions, which are the ones where, um, it's not necessarily the case that anyone anywhere uh, can get their beliefs expressed through these more closed platforms that are provided 
typically by app stores and and you know uh, particular platforms on the internet. I think I think Potter's back on, <laughs> but yes, seventieth of May is the latest info I have. Then they were uh, back on, but but right. so I, I I think I and and. The, the other thing to note here is that Barlow is, is always he, he another f- sort of interesting failure of Barlow's is that he speaks in the singular where we f- currently speak in the plural. He yeah. talks about a world in which so he thinks about this as a space, not several different connected spaces. And what's happened with scale is that it's fragmented into a ton of different facets of the internet or facets of cyberspace that are sort of loosely interconnected in different ways. But where you can certainly find some place where you can express all of your views freely you can't do it uniformly universally across the sum of all of the different fragments of what is currently currently cyberspace and so so to me in a sense what what sort of he is he's saying here and especially with the the silence or conformity is premised on this notion that the, the cyberspace is a coherent whole Whereas I think one of the great differences also from a regulatory and tech policy standpoint is that there's no such thing as one cyberspace. And uh, this is a distinction you and I tried to make mm. many, many times, I think, when we said that you shouldn't confuse the freedom of speech on the Internet with the ability to say anything you want on a platform. Those are different. And I think that difference is not captured in the way that he thinks about this. And I think there are platforms. I mean, if you switch that, the inverse of it is there are certainly uh, places where you are being coerced into silence and you are being coerced into conformity in big ways currently. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the sort of smaller groups can police speech much more efficiently than, than, than the police or platforms ever could. So, so to me, it's, it's, it's that sort of failure to distinguish the singular and the plural that, that, that stands out uh, in this paragraph to a certain extent. Yeah, I think you're right because I think I think in a sense what we've ended up with is uh, talking about this earlier. This sort of the governance gap uh, has been filled by large corporations, uh, and so yes. it's the r- rules of those large corporations that apply, whether that's an, an app store policy or a Facebook content policy or a Google search listing policy, um, and so th- those have had much more impact. Uh, but you're right, they're not the whole of the internet. So the whole of the internet arguably still does, these principles do apply and, and you can go somewhere and say what you want to say. But the, the internet, as most people experience it on a daily basis, tends to be mediated through these platforms and these platforms do have rules um, and, and are quite tightly governed. Um, yeah. So, yes. so should we get, go on? Oh, sorry. Yes, yes we should. Sorry, we get we get stuck in this. Yeah. It's very interesting. I'll read the next one. So the next one yeah. is 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 a bit of a whooper. So it says yeah. your legal con- <laughs> your legal concepts of property, expression, identity, movement, and context do not apply to us. They're all based on matter, and there's no matter here. <laughs> it's 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 such a beautiful. I mean, it's I really like it. But you know, where did he go wrong here? Yeah. So, so again, I think this is the this is one where um, uh, if if you accept the sort of cyberspace that exists outside of society, then yes, arguably it it doesn't have matter, and and therefore these concepts don't apply. But in reality, I think that's never been the case uh, that we can we can say that this thing exists entirely outside reality. And in fact, in a sense, this sort of conflicts with those earlier ideas that this is. Uh, 
a sort of growth of uh, human nature that is people, it's sort of people-centered network. So the people uh, have matter. You and I have matter, and and we are what make the internet rather than it being something you know entirely separate from us. So I think this is one that I just don't think does hold up uh, in any sort of meaningful way because all of those legal concepts apply to the people, and I don't think you can create this neat separation between people as matter and people as mind <laughs> no and uh, yeah, that sort of dualism is 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 really one of the basic problems i think in the declaration but but again yeah. i think this is also a failure of prediction not observation because i think he was right to the extent that matter didn't exist in the 1996 version of cyberspace as he thought about it uh, because then it was largely disembodied from the rest of society but if he had seen that he should have drawn the conclusion again 2020 hindsight he should have drawn yes. the conclusion that you know the 25 years that follow will be a ginormous government project to rematerialize the internet which is what yes. it's been that's what yeah. it's been right the rematerialization of the internet has been what people have been doing with jurisdiction with data localization bringing back both sort of space and geography and locality and i think ultimately matter into the way that we govern uh, the internet has been sort of one of the underlying trends of the tech policy project for the last 25 years and 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 it's it's so interesting because you make this observation and you go like oh and i think people will be fine with that <laughs> Like no, no, they won't. You're, you're sort of painting this enormous tension between a space that has no matter, and matter is fundamental to all legislation. And you're not drawing the conclusion that what will happen is that this space will be rematerialized through uh, the exercise of power on the behalf of government. They're not going to cede this space. And so, I, I, I that was sort of what really stood out to me in this one. And yeah. I also, I, I've, all, I've always one of the things I've, you know, sadly, Barlow has passed away, or otherwise he would tell us we were wrong. But it's, it's sort of that one of the things that that I think I would have asked if I could is this notion of a legal concept of context. Or yes. does he mean the context overall does not apply to us? Legal contexts don't apply to us. The context of the laws in which you were made don't apply to us. If so, he should have expected that there would be a massive push to change the context. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I would love to dig into that. Context is um, something that, you know, comes up continually in, in uh, content-related disputes on the internet. You know, it becomes critical. The, the context of, in which something was said becomes critical to a decision that you're making on it. So, so that's the context that I think of when I'm looking at this. Um, but did he mean that? Did he mean something else? Curious. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We should go to the next one. Yeah. Um, uh, this is, yeah, this is, this is one. Uh, it's over to you. <laughs> okay. This one will challenge. So uh, on the same theme, our identities have no bodies. So unlike you, we cannot obtain order by physical coercion. We believe that from ethics, enlightened self-interest, and the common wheel, our governance will emerge. Our identities may be distributed across many of your jurisdictions. The only law that all our constituent cultures would generally recognize is the golden rule. We hope we will be able to build our particular solutions on that basis, but we cannot accept the solutions you're attempting to impose. So Nicholas, the golden rule. Is that what's formed the basis of how we run the internet? 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think it's more sort of do unto others before they can do to you. So, <laughs> so, so it's no, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of kidding. But, but I, I think, I mean, it's, it's again, uh, it's a failure of social prediction or technological prediction. Mm. It's a failure of what would happen to this space as it grew immensely beyond the wildest dream of anyone in 1996. And, and I think that, I think there are certainly communities that uh, can be described as operating on the golden rule. I think there are, you know, Facebook groups. I think there are, are fantastic groups where people help other people who suffer from really rare diseases. I think there are, are great educational groups online that probably do work in an altruistic fashion and, and sort of have the golden rule as a basic operating principle. But it, it's the singular and the plural again. Um, is this true for all of the internet? No, it's not. And our constituent cultures are so many and so different that some of them uh, are, are just much more harsh than that. And where there's no ability for us to form a culture to close a social contract, slip back into the state of nature and the state of nature is not the golden rule and so mm. so I, I i mean i think that's i think i don't know what do you think um yeah. golden rule is such a high bar too i was amazed to <laughs> I, when i reread this i was like that's the bar you're setting and i mean the reference class of societies built on the golden rule is zero <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like that's that's ambitious to put it mildly and again, I think we discussed earlier this sort of the um, liberal, small L liberal optimism sort of suggests that if you know, people will will respond well to each other in this sort of base of reciprocity. And, and again, back to the comments you made earlier about scale, that there is a really interesting dynamic that takes place where I think that reciprocity certainly does exist within small communities. And on the internet, we find those. There's a point at which people don't feel those ties or the, uh, uh, they don't feel that it is a two-way relationship they're having and they're much more prepared to slip into one-way, more exploitative or or sort of a hostile um, relationship than they would otherwise have. And I think social media is, has, has it's the best of both worlds. There are places in social media absolutely about reciprocity, um, you know, patient groups who are sharing information with each other and, and operating under the golden rule. And then there are places on social media where, uh, you know, people come in to troll. And uh, trolling is the opposite, <laughs> if you like, of uh, reciprocity and the opposite of the golden rule. Uh, in e-commerce, similarly, you know, a lot of the communities, eBay was a classic one that definitely was uh, had a golden period where the golden rule applied and people were trading fairly with each other and treating each other well. Uh, and then it reached a certain scale where people were coming onto the platform and, and starting to rip others off. And then the platform had to develop a, a sort of sophisticated set of rules and controls in order to prevent that. So I, th- I think it, the golden rule... Uh, uh, as I say, if we remember this word reciprocity, it works where people do feel it's a two-way arrangement. It starts to break down where where people don't feel any connection or or that they owe anything to the other people in the relationship. And in the big wide open space of the internet, we're much more in, in that game, I think, than we are in the smaller spaces. I, I do think it's interesting when I when I hear you sort of describe this to think about what is the quotient, what sort of what percentage of the mm. internet operates under the golden rule. And I feel myself becoming more optimistic when I think about it after having sort of heard you you talk about the reciprocity with not just patient groups, but you think about parent groups for your for your school or, you know, we have a small group here at the island where you can uh, buy and sell things, but also help each other if you need something transported or, you know, if you're if you suddenly run out of sugar and you don't know 
have a boat. So you, there's, I, I wonder if there's more reciprocity than than sort of egoism at, on the internet. And, and you know what? I actually think I would I would bet that there's more reciprocity counted as the number of transactions between people than there is uh, egotism or or sort of aggressive um, posturing. And I think we forget that because the problems loom so large and we see the, the negatives so clearly and, you know, the specific disbenefits always beat the general benefits. But, I, you know, what you could make a very provocative statement and said, you know, Barlow is right. Most of the communities yeah. on the Internet operate under the golden rule. Maybe that would not be – maybe the, I, I actually think I'm – you know, I think I'm yeah. slowly trending that way as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you think of a platform like Twitter and, you know, everyone, everyone sort of get, focuses, as you say, on the disbenefits when, when you get the trolling on Twitter. But tri- Twitter would be empty if it weren't for the fact that on, on a daily basis, hundreds of millions of people are having really good reciprocal relationships where they post something and other people post stuff, you know, in response and they have a good conversation about whatever it is that they're interested in. So I think you're right. You know, we're, the internet would be empty and depopulated if it weren't for the fact that most of the spaces and most of the time we are getting some kind of mutual benefit out of the transactions and the interactions that take place. So that's a good thesis, I think, for us to about. Doesn't, doesn't take away from the harm that's done by the trolling experiences or the, the negative experiences. No, no. But, but they are the exception, not the rule. And, and sometimes in the coverage of the internet, it feels like it's the other way around. People sort of uh, paint the exception as the norm, and it certainly isn't. Uh, say otherwise otherwise we'd have empty spaces none of us would put up with it for very long so uh, exactly we would require a certain degree of reciprocity to engage right that's that's the other thing that i think is is right you have so yeah i'll go on and to the next one because i think the next one is is interesting and and shows a blind spot as well Uh, don't do the two paragraphs together sorry um, if you do the two paragraphs together yes yes we we, as the first yeah they, they do belong together, you're right. In the United States, you have today created a law, the Telecommunications Reform Act, which repudiates your own constitution and insults the dreams of Jefferson, Washington, Mill, Madison, the Tockerwill, and Brandeis. These dreams must now be uh, born anew in us. You're terrified of your own children, since they are natives in a world where you will always be immigrants. Because you fear them, you entrust your bureaucracies with the parental responsibilities that you are too cowardly to confront <laughs> yourselves. In our world, all the sentiments and expressions of humanity from the debasing to the angelic are parts of a seamless whole, the global conversation of bits. We cannot separate the air that chokes from the air upon which wings beat. Wow, that's some yeah, poetry there. Uh, yeah. So, Before we go into the second part, where I think is yeah. most interesting, I think we should call out at this point that Barlow's internet is an American internet. Yes. And that's a, that's a very, if you look at what has happened since he wrote this, it's a declaration of independence for an American internet. It's a sort of an internet that plays out against an American background that's controlled by American citizens that's been invented in America. And I think one of the good things where he was wrong is that it's no longer the case. It's much more of a global internet today. But, but let's, let's, let's talk about yeah. the air that chokes. What yeah, do you think so, so- about this piece? So, so this is, I mean, this is his reaction, to the, you, and you started with this, to the Communications Decency Act. So he is, he's uh, explicitly calling out uh, this piece of legislation and saying it, in his view, it's sort of unconstitutional in the US. And then I think there's a sort of notion of 
being terrified of your own children, being terrified of what people are saying and, and uh, putting power into bureaucracies is very much a, uh, sort of his response to the fact that the US government feels it needs to legislate in this area. Um, I, again, the, the poetry I like of it, uh, this idea that, that we have the debased and the angelic together, I think, and it is accurate. I mean, that's what we get. Um, I think a lot of the regulatory response, including starting with the CDA, really, and then running right up to today, when we look at things like the UK online safety bill, is exactly aimed at, at the notion that this is a seamless whole, this global conversation. But it's saying, no, 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 we can separate the air that chokes from the air upon which wings beat. We can have an, an internet that's only for the angels and not for the debased. Um, and so he's actually sort of captured the driving force behind legislation. And, and I think we're still arguing today about whether or not that's possible. Um, uh, but it's become real. It's, this is the common thread, I think, that runs through so much of the harms and safety-based legislation is this idea that we can get rid of the bad stuff whilst keeping the good stuff. And Barlow clearly, you know, it's setting yeah. a very, very clear view. You can't. <laughs> And, and and also making the point that this space is no different from any other. I like that because what you just said, and I think that the, one of the key problems in the tech policy space that we've seen in the 25 years following this is the the idea that the internet should be held to a higher standard than societies in general, that the internet should be cleaner, it should be good, it should be more of the angelic, less of the debasing than our societies in general. And I think that is that is a place where we often go wrong. We think this, and it's partly because of Barlow sort of painting this as a new homo mind and a, a, a sort of ideal democratic space and a lot of us sort of chiming in and saying yes the internet is a democratizing force it's been held to this higher standard in a way that i think has been mm-hmm. not great for the debate we should be happy if the internet is uh, slightly better than society yes. we should be content if it's exactly the same as society because it connects so many more of us but we should not hold it to a sort of a utopian status in which uh, the, the sort of wise philosopher kings are debating and queens are debating the future of the world in a in a rational sense and determining it. I, there's there's something about his realism here, and you don't associate that word often with Barlow that I really like. Yeah, the, the other sentence that jumped out at me just because we talked about this previously, and he says this much much more harshly, I think, than we would ever have done is you entrust your bureaucracies with the parental responsibilities you're too cowardly to confront yourselves. And we, we spent a, a fair bit of time, didn't we, talking about, um, laws that impose minimum age limits on internet services. Yeah. Which are, which, which, uh, are sort of then bypassed by parents, uh, uh, at, at scale. And so I think he's actually very, very accurately described some of the stuff like the provision in the European General Data Protection Regulation that basically tries to, you know, prohibit, uh, uh, use of personal data type services for under 16 year olds um he's got that 25 years ago he's he sort of captured that notion yeah, yeah. uh in quite and a also the driving force and, and, the, and the driving force behind it right that they are yeah. natives and you are not and you're afraid of your own children yeah. because they know much more about this than i think that's a feeling that a lot of parents can identify with when you see their kids on their phones and they're sort of engaged in something you don't understand on some app you don't know. And they're suddenly really sad because someone has cyber bullied them. There's, there's not just a fear of your children. It's a fear of what's actually happening to them in the world they're in. And you feel as if you're an alien in that world. And that, I think, drives this push yeah. to 
to the bureaucracy. Someone has to do something. The underpinning argument of almost all politics, and and sort of that's that's what you see so well described here. I think. And uh, then he does go a little bit international, and he, uh, he, in 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 an almost entirely negative way. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, so the next paragraph is: In China, Germany, France, Russia, Singapore, Italy, and the United States, you're trying to ward off the virus of liberty by erecting guard posts at the frontiers of cyberspace. These may keep out the contagion for a small time, but they will not work in a world that will soon be blanketed in bit-bearing media. What do we think of that? Well, I, I think it's interesting that he calls out all of these other countries as negative vis-a-vis the internet, and they're sort of erecting frontiers and guard posts. It would have been interesting if he had phrased this in, we need the Chinese, German, France, French, Russian, Singaporean, Italian voices on the internet. Please allow everyone to be included. Don't stop the... But instead, what he is sort of doing is he's taking the countries and saying, you're all trying to stop the new liberty. And it almost, it has to sort of... I'll exaggerate now, but I'll say it has a taste of 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 imperialism, right? Sort of internet yes. imperialism. We shall liberate you from your old weary government of flesh and steel with the internet. And there's there's something about that I think has has been seen rightly as quite unsympathetic, you know, as as quite unfriendly and and in a way not really constructive. But but that was a part of the rhetoric around the early internet activism that, you know, we, we need to project the internet into a country and it will become free. And I think that yeah. has, that has not served us well. That has been a, the, the notion of a virus of liberty. I mean, the language alone is, is like, <laughs> we, we will, we will sort of infect you with liberty. And there's, there's so much wrong about this. It is sort of one of the few paragraphs actually. And, you know, <laughs> it says a lot. One of the few paragraphs that makes me cringe is, is this one, because I feel, here he is full-blown technological determinist. He is sort of a liberal democracy imperialist. He is trying to push uh, things that I essentially agree with and think are good, but he's trying to push them in a way that I think is not constructive and not possible, frankly. What do you yeah. think? I, I, did, I wondered if the Davos context kicks in here, and I wondered how many of those countries were represented at Davos, because he, he's sitting there in, in the Swiss mountains. He's, it's his opportunity to speak uh, to the assembled bigwigs from around the world. And it does, I agree with your analysis. I think he's there sort of going, aha, I'm going to challenge you. And I say, the list of countries, I, I don't know if it's uh, what was in the news at the time or, or if it's that there were people from those countries in Davos and he was thinking, right, I'm going to go punch you on the nose here. <laughs> you know? yeah, I'm Try curious about Italy's inclusion. Italy seems yeah. as if they sort of just slid in at the end because he, he needed another country. And I was like, yeah. what? <laughs> Stick him but it, uh, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so, so we move on to somebody else he was going to punch on the nose as we yes, get towards please. the end of this. So uh, it's, it's uh, yours, Nicholas. <laughs> yes. Your increasingly obsolete information industries would perpetuate themselves by proposing laws in America and elsewhere that claim to own speech itself throughout the world. These laws would declare ideas to be another industrial product no more noble than pig iron. In our world, whatever the human may, mind may create can be reproduced and distributed infinitely at no cost. The global conveyance of thought no longer requires your factories to accomplish. Right. This is this is a I mean he's he's spot on here, isn't he? Because that happened. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when I read this, I, I I couldn't help but think of something else we've talked about, the the EU copyright 
regulation, the recent one that sort of came in, which is, does exactly this, uh, proposes laws that claim to own speech itself throughout the, the, the world. And, and in, in this notion that if you have a snippet of somebody else's, you know, news content, you've got to pay for it. It's because you've, this is the sort of idea of pig iron. Uh, it's a product, uh, like a physical product, and you've got to pay for it. I think it's absolutely run through, you know, the whole, uh, uh, pressure for legislation from these information industries uh, like the news industry over the last 25 years. So he, he analyzed it exactly correctly what they were going and called out what they were going to do. Um, uh, does the global convention thought no longer require factories? Yeah, I think that's actually true. Um, so I think the analysis that we can reproduce it infinitely at no cost is true, that we don't need the factories is true. I think it's also true that the information industries have fought very, very hard uh, to get laws in place that allow them to continue to exploit their industrial products. <laughs> yeah, again, it's observation and prediction, right? If this is yeah. what you see, then you should expect the, the you should expect countervailing forces to 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 uh, attack you, and and that is exactly what happened. Uh, I, but I do think that in the long run, and Barnabas said this himself, the long arc of thought uh, bends towards global distribution uh, and a, a sort of more of a global conversation, perhaps, or com- several conversations to our earlier discussion um i i I must say that i i uh, i read this i thought it was just he's also again underestimating the european union's ability to lead on the legislative conversation i think he always starts with america which is which is interesting the emergence of the european union as a legislative powerhouse was something i don't think that he could have seen because in the back of his mind he probably had the Bangerman report from 1994 that was a sort of extraordinary laissez-faire document even by American standards when it come, came to internet regulation. One of the great stories I think of the last 25 years is how how the European Union turned from being um, the single most laissez-faire actor in internet regulation to um, what is their own ambition I think as sort of a regulatory superpower as they sometimes call it and that's a yeah. it's a, it's a really interesting story so uh, to this point, if, if the US had not been constrained by the first amendment you know it, it the, the political pressure was there for them to do a lot more and again a lot of the history of what John Perry Barlow and the EFF did was to use U.S. law, particularly constitutional law, to push back on on measures that were trying to go in the same direction as the European Union. So you're right, the European Union could go there because it doesn't have a First Amendment. The the U.S., there was pressure to go there, but thanks to the First Amendment and people like the EFF challenging uh, some of these measures, it has not gone nearly as far. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> Can we take the two paragraphs, uh, last paragraphs together? Yes, um, uh, for me. So uh, these increasingly hostile and colonial measures place us in the same position as those previous lovers of freedom and self-determination who had to reject the authorities of distant, uninformed powers. We must declare our virtual selves immune to your sovereignty, even as we continue to consent to your rule over our bodies. We will spread ourselves across the planet so that no one can arrest our thoughts. We will create a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. May it be more humane and fair than the world your governments have made before. With that, we close. So uh, how do you feel about that? Are we... Uh, well, I mean, some of the themes are sort of repeated, but but in particular, do you think uh, that cyberspace has created a more humane and fair world? 
I, you know, it's interesting. I think we're better off with cyberspace than without it. I think we're better off now than we were 25 years ago. I yeah. think that overall the world is trending in a good direction. I'm, a, I'm sort of an, an, an existential optimist with a mind of a golden retriever. I tend to think that everything will go just fine. And so, so I, I, I would say that we have created a civilization not separate from our civilization, but in, integrated with the the sort of the vision of cyberspace here but i also wouldn't rule out the declaration of independence one way one interesting way to read this is to read it against different time horizons if you read it against sort of a a 25 year time horizon as we have done here today we would say that there are a lot of things in here that turned out not to be entirely right and there's a lot of a lot of stuff where he sort of got the observation right but the prediction failed but if you sort of start to read this against a 50 year horizon or a 100 year horizon and you start thinking about what are happening to these trends over time? You know, how, how much can you restrict communication in a world where communication increases in bandwidth and networks and, you know, connectedness or connectiveness, connectivity uh, across the world? What is, what is happening over time? You may want to read more carefully because Barlow mm-hmm. may be onto something that is that is a little bit more interesting to read in a 1500 year uh, perspective than to read in a 25 year perspective. So I read this and I, I must confess to sort of feeling a sense of, of adventure and, you know, that we're part of this, which I think is a large revolution in the state of human affairs. And, and that sort of, there is this alternative vision that has been, that is current. We're sort of in the Empire Strikes Back phase of Star Wars. <laughs> Um, and sort of yes. you know, Luke has had his hand cut off and is dangling from a, a sort of a, a, a fence and about to fall off and just discovered that that the, the uh, you know Darth Vader is his father or that the internet can censor <laughs> and, and sort of and and now the question is what happens next and I yeah. think this this way to read Barlow as something that opens up to what's happened what happens next is 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 where I net out. Right. What about That's you? I think I'm in a, in a similar place. I'm just thinking that the, you know um, these recordings, in a way, are one of a, one of our modest contributions to this civilization of the mind in cyberspace. Um, you know, so we have this opportunity, not 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 so trivially, we have an opportunity to share our thoughts, uh, to get them out there, for, to engage with other people around our thoughts, to read their thoughts. This it, it it has become material in a way that you know thirty forty years ago was just not possible. You had to uh, find limited paper based resources. You had limited spaces within which you c- could debate with other people. You had to physically get into the same spaces. Um, all of that has fundamentally changed. So I think you're right. Over the long arc, we have uh, created a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. Um, it comes with some downsides. Uh, uh, certainly true. This, this connectivity comes with some downsides, but I think net net, uh, it's uh, tremendous, um, and it is humane uh, by and large, and it's certainly human. Um, so I'm, yes. I'm ending on a similarly <laughs> positive note. Gosh, yes, gosh, this was a long session, but it was it worth was. it. Thank you. I think this is this is really really interesting, and and this podcast can be found on your website, which is www.regulate.tech and with that me uh, with that I Nicholas Baird Lombard and I Richard Allen signing off our 24th episode <laughs> of Regulate Tech thank you for listening and do tune in next week thank you thank you